Welcome again to the Apologist Bookshelf. Gary Zacharias here. I'm doing something really different for this one. Uh, every other podcast has been a look at some of the books that I have on my shelf. And this time, I'm going to discuss a book that I have not read. I'm using a review of the book by Tom Bethel. And it's called Darwinism and Materialism. They sink or swim together. So what he's doing is re- reviewing a book by Stephen Meyer, And Meyer's first book that I already have done a podcast on is called Signature in the Cell. And his third major book was called Return of the God Hypothesis. And I've done a a podcast on that one as well. But it's his second book that I have not gotten a hold of yet. And I would like to. I'm going to read it sometime. So it's something worthwhile spending a little time on. It's called Darwin's Doubt. It came out about nine years ago, I guess it is. And so, you you know, it'll be available, I'm sure, in in, uh, used book form somewhere that you could pick up uh, fairly cheaply, I would think. So the subtitle of the book is Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design. And it got a lot of flack, apparently, from uh, reading Tom's review of it here. Some people said uh, Meyer was a fool, he was incompetent, he was guilty of ignorance, he's in way over his head. And uh, he's lying and all sorts of stuff. But there are a lot of scientists are actually backing him up with this thing. It's been praised by, for example, George Church, who's a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School. No slouch there. Scott Turner, a professor of biology at SUNY. Russell Carlson, a professor of biochemistry at the University of Georgia, and a dozen others. Then he actually references somebody named George Gilder, who's an author of Knowledge and Power, and he calls this book, Darwin's Doubt, the best science book ever written. Wow. Okay, so what's going on with this book? Well, in the first part, Meyer is talking about organisms look intelligently designed. And that goes against what Darwin claimed. Of course, in his book, and this is what Meyer's going to cover in the first part of Darwin's Doubt, he looks back at Charles Darwin. Well, in Origin of the Species... Darwin's saying that organisms arose by just natural selection and random variation. It's a slow process, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. But he says the fossil record shows that major animal forms appeared without any visible predecessors. And that's called a Cambrian explosion. And you might have heard about that before. And it says the Darwinian rule book says those kinds of changes that are sudden are really improbable. Why? Well, they've got two problems, evolutionists do. One is not enough time and missing fossils, right? Where are those transitional fossils that can get you from one kind of animal body style to the next? So Meyer takes a look at the Cambrian explosion. That's about 500 million years ago. And they've discovered more things in China recently showing that these new phyla that came along after the Cambrian explosion appeared within a 10 million year period. Now, we would say 10 million years, good grief. (laughs) That should be plenty of time for things to happen. But some even say that explosive period may have been only five to six million years. Now you say, well, isn't that enough time to get these animals to come along? But if you have a three billion year history of life on Earth, then it said that Cambrian explosion is just basically the equivalent of a few minutes in a 24 hour day. It's a geological blink of the eye. So how did this happen? And they found uh, not just... In China, but they found references to the Cambrian explosion in the Burgess Shale in British Columbia, and they can't find any plausible ancestors in lower strata, either in Canada or China. And some of these Cambrian creatures are pretty highly complex, and they have, for example, trilobites. 
They have lens-focusing eyes and a 360-degree field of vision. And Meyer points out those things are not very primitive. And they even found some of the Cambria phyla in uh, Wales. And Darwin knew about those. And he realized that unless they could find some ancestors, his theory was in big trouble. So they've known about this for something like 150 years. And Meyer, Meyer's uh, job is to discuss and to show what this problem is. He, he said there were several escape routes that the Darwinists came up with. Like what? Well, how about this? Maybe the forms that were there first didn't have hard body parts, and so they couldn't fossilize. Well, Meyer points out, oops, lots of soft-bodied organisms from the Precambrian have been preserved. So that didn't help. Then there's the, the possible solution called punctuated equilibrium. And uh, there was a paleontologist, Niles Eldridge, who suggested this, that with Stephen Jay Gould, by the way, they both came up with this punctuated equilibrium idea. In, and here's how it worked. You'd have long periods where the animal forms would stay the same. They wouldn't change. And then all of a sudden, here comes the punctuated part, there'd be periods of Boom, new life forms happening so quickly that you wouldn't find a record of them. So <laughs> somebody said this. Uh, this is what Meyer is quoting a curator of ichthyology at American Museum of Natural History. He said, Darwin said that speciation occurred too slowly for us to see it. Gould and Eldridge said it occurred too quickly for us to see it. Either way, we don't see it. So Meyer shows that that punctuated equilibrium doesn't work out very well. They haven't found any fleeting ancestors anywhere. And here's the big problem. The people that pushed punctuated equilibrium couldn't come up with a mechanism that could produce so many changes, anatomical changes, so quickly. And he says also that uh, the idea of the missing ancestral fossils just being a uh, an artifact of incomplete sampling. In other words, we just haven't looked enough places. Is that true? He said, no. He said, if you look all over the place, all over the world, they keep unearthing the same old specimens. So it's pretty hard to keep saying, well, they're over here. No, they're not. How about over here? No, they're not. He said, maybe the missing ones were never there to begin with. Ouch. So that's the first part of his book, looking at Darwin, looking at the problems, talking about the Cambrian explosion. In the second part of the book, then Meyer uh, has a new section here called How to Build an Animal. And now he switches the argument. He's talking about if you get a new animal body to build it, you have to have new genetic information and what's called epigenetic information. That's biological information that's stored outside of DNA. And he shows that the Cambrian explosion is not just new forms of animal life, but it's an explosion of the information or the instructions that you have to have to build them. But how do you get new information? Well, the Darwinists say you do it through mutation. Well, that's a random change in the chemical bases that are kind of like alphabetic characters in the genetic code that's in DNA. So what do you have to do? If you want to build a whole new animal, you need all sorts of major mutations. But here's the catch. Most mutations are lethal. They're lethal. And they usually occur, if they occur early in the embryonic development, they are lethal. That's it. Uh, Meyer says it this way, they generate dead animals incapable of further evolution. Well, what about late-acting mutations? Well, some of them can be viable, but they don't affect the architecture. The architecture is already there. So here's the Darwinian dilemma that Meyer points out. Major changes are not viable. Visible changes are not major. Do you get that? 
major changes are not viable. Right, so if you try to make those changes happen early when you can really change the animal, it kills the animal. And if you do make some changes that do happen, they're minor, very minor. They're not major. And you need tons of changes to get a new animal structure in place. He says you got a statistical problem to get these speedy appearances of animals with new body forms. Why? Well, I said DNA and proteins said are like numbers with hundreds or maybe thousands of precisely arranged digits. So the right guess corresponds to a DNA sequence that can produce a new protein with some good benefit for the offspring. And we have inside animals intricately folded proteins made of hundreds of precisely arranged sequences of amino acids. Now, how do you generate even just one new protein by mutating DNA at random? It has such a tiny, tiny chance of ever occurring even on the scale of all the time of evolution. The number of amino acids, Meyer says, and the combinations that mutations must search for exceeds the time that's available. All right, so there's no time to get these things to happen. And he said it gets worse than this. One mutation may be beneficial, but the next mutation can cancel the first one. Oh, that's not good. So the standard Darwinian view doesn't take any account of mutations that could reverse the progress that's being made. Well, in addition, Meyer says proteins and genes can't be randomly changed much at all without degrading their function. But a transition from one body plan to another has to be viable at every stage. It has to work all the way through. This, I think, kind of ties into what Michael Behe was talking about in uh, Darwin's Black Box. Uh, you know, for example, the... Uh, flagellar motor that uh, some bacteria have, it does no good to have a little piece of that flagellar motor because it doesn't give the animal any advantage. All right, so let's move to the third part of Meyer's book here. So now he makes his case for intelligent design. And he said, uh, Meyer uh, says the only known cause of the origin of digital information that we see in the Cambrian explosion is intelligent activity. And he quotes an information theorist named Henry Quassler, who says, the creation of information is habitually associated with conscious activity. And so Meyer concludes that intelligent design, design provides the best explanation we have for the Cambrian information explosion. And he says, if you look around at the recent discoveries, especially molecular biology, said they've weakened Darwinism. And he goes back to in time, he says, uh, think of a, uh, contemporary to Darwin named Ernst Haeckel. Now, he, he was a uh, supporter of Darwin. He viewed the cell as what he called just a simple lump of prota uh, protoplasm. Well, do we see it that way now? No, a cell is a high-tech nanofactory, unbelievably complicated, and it can reproduce itself. A cell can reproduce itself, something no man-made machine has been able to do. Dembski says, a uh, friend of his, a uh, friend of Myers, William Dimsky, says, actually intelligent design can make good predictions that have actually come true. He said, for example, if you believe in evolution, then there should be a lot of useless DNA, you know, dead-end mutations. If, on the other hand, organisms are designed, you'd expect to find more and more function in DNA. And it says, What's been happening over the last 10, 15 years? Well, at one time, DNA was uh, thought of as having a lot of junk elements to it, including the National Institute of Health Director, Francis Collins. He bought into that. 
he's a person who believes in theistic evolution, so he really thinks DNA did evolve and did have a lot of junk as part of it. Well, in the last few years, even Nature, the prestigious science journal, has agreed, because they published papers on this ENCODE project, that's found that DNA doesn't really have any junk. They reported last year, that'd be 2012, so we're talking 10 years ago, this ENCODE project reported that over 80% of DNA in the human genome serves some purpose biochemically. And earlier, they thought 98% was junk DNA. Now they're saying, no, 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 80% does useful things, and that's increasing every year as they look at more of it. Okay, so Meyer uh, talks about things like the rules of science. Well, what does the science say? Well, we'll we'll only call it science if you do methodological naturalism. So in other words, only material causes are permitted. That rules out ID. They say, no, ID is a religion. Um, ID does admit non-material causes, see? So that, that's the way scientists can get away with ignoring it. But Meyer says science abounds with all sorts of non-material entities. Information is non-material. How about the decisions we make in our own conscious minds? That's transmitted into the world of physical matter. Every day we start with a mental decision and we turn it into a physical act. So if our own minds can disturb matter in ways that can't really be explained by materialists, isn't it possible that some larger, more all-encompassing mind, capital M, could impact the world of nature? Yeah, it is. So this, again, is just a kind of a quick run-through of the book. Darwin's Doubt, Tom Bethel was the one who, or Bethel, I'm not sure, is the one who did the report on it, and it got me really curious to read the book, so I'm going to have to get a hold of that pretty soon. His other books are wonderful. Signature in the Cell came out first, then we got Darwin's Doubt, and his third one was The Return of the God Hypothesis. I highly recommend all of these books. Uh, parts of it may be a little thick going, but... You can always skim over it. He's got plenty of illustrations, and the, the big picture is pretty clear. Darwinism is a little bit uh, on shaky ground, I would say, and the intelligent design people have done a wonderful job without invoking a God of the New Testament or a God of the Old Testament or a God of any religion. They're just looking at the science and saying what we're seeing is designed. And I think that's a good, safe position to take. We don't have to worry about age of the earth and get into all those picky arguments. All right. Well, thanks for uh, listening and uh, we'll do another podcast soon. You have a good day.